There are lots of famous mysteries that you can explain now if you carefully study the details. The tragedy of the Titanic, for example. Anyone can recreate a picture of that night and build a map of those terrible events with all the information available online now. You can also explain what's going on in the Bermuda Triangle. Spoiler alert, nothing mysterious about it. Missing trains, time-traveling planes, strange black holes in the desert, spooky sounds, visual anomalies. You may not find the answers to all these riddles right away, but if you apply some critical thinking and a whole lot of dedication, you can eventually gain a better, more practical understanding of what exactly is going on. So, I'm now going to tell you about the disappearance of Martha Wright. But this story is not like all the others I just mentioned. This mysterious and creepy puzzle is almost impossible to solve. There are no leads, no clues, no theories that make any sense of it. This is one of those cases that can really make you feel clueless, pun intended. But regardless, I'll still try my best to explain it to you. So, let's look at this story from the very beginning and try not to miss even the tiniest details. The year is 1975. Jackson Wright and his wife Martha Wright are going by car from New Jersey to New York. It's a little hot inside the cabin, so Jackson turns on his AC. The road they're on leads them into the Lincoln Tunnel. They're driving in there, slowing down a bit. After a few minutes, Jackson starts to wipe the windshield, holding his hand on the wheel. Some condensation has accumulated on the glass because of the unstable conditioner. The rear window is also slightly fogged up, so Jackson slows down and then stops the car. There are no other vehicles in the tunnel. Jackson takes two rags out of the glove compartment. He gives one of them to Martha and asks her to wipe the rear window. His wife is moving into the back seat to remove the condensation. She doesn't leave the car. Jackson wipes the front window for a few seconds, turns to Martha and can't find her. She's vanished. All the doors are closed. There is only one car in the tunnel. Jackson's. At first, he thinks it's some kind of a joke. He looks carefully at the back seats and out of the windows. Martha, where are you? He asks in fear in his voice. He opens the door with his hands trembling. Martha, Jackson screams. His voice echoes through the entire dark tunnel. Martha Wright has just literally vanished into thin air. It's a bit creepy, isn't it? It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Poor Martha. And poor Jackson. At first glance, some might say that the real reason for Martha's disappearance is her husband, and that he made the whole story up as an excuse. We don't know what kind of relationship they were in. Maybe they had a fight or planned a divorce. Yes, it would be easy to blame the husband. But you don't have enough evidence to support that conclusion. 
Immediately after the disappearance, Jackson contacted the police. An investigation began. Detectives interviewed people passing by the tunnel that day. They carefully studied all the streets, alleys, and even the nearest basements. Of course, they didn't ignore the possibility that Jackson was guilty, but they couldn't find any evidence to that effect either. It almost seemed like Martha didn't exist at all. Jackson loved his wife. He couldn't get over the fact that no one could explain her disappearance. The police certainly couldn't find her. Jackson drove through that tunnel many times, hoping that one day, in the light of his headlights, the silhouette of his missing wife would appear. Are you getting nervous? Well, you need to beat that fear if you want to figure things out. You need to assess the situation with a clear mind. Okay, so it was 1975. There were no phones or cameras. There was one car in a dark tunnel. I'm sure there are some rooms and long corridors that connect the Lincoln Tunnel to the sewer system or the subway. So I'm thinking, what if someone took Martha Wright out of her car? What if it was mole people? You've probably heard of them, people that live in the underground labyrinths of the New York subway. There are a lot of rumors about them. The story goes that for some reason, they refused to live like ordinary citizens of the city and descended into its dungeons. They have no contact with sunlight at all. They can see in the dark. Their diet consists of rats and trash. They can quickly crawl on all fours and even climb walls. Their sense of smell is developed, and they can sense an uninvited guest from afar. Sometimes they get out of their tunnels at night to gather provisions or food. What if, on that terrible day in 1975, the mole people crept up to the car unnoticed, quietly opened the door, grabbed Martha, and dragged her into the kingdom of darkness. Jackson might not have noticed it. Sounds compelling, right? Well, fortunately, all these stories about mole people are fictional. There are people who live in the underground tunnel systems of major cities, but they don't look like moles, and they eat normal food. In other words, they're just people trying to survive. There are many articles on the internet describing their real life. They come down to live in the tunnels for various reasons. The most common story is that for one reason or another, they couldn't make it in the city. For example, one guy lost his job and had a fight with his wife and got injured, so everyone abandoned him and his only option was to migrate down below. There was one story of one woman who tried to hide from some bad people on those underground labyrinths. Hundreds and even thousands of people live in environments like these, each for their own reasons. And believe me, their way of life is not as terrible as it may seem. Many people in these tunnels have electrical appliances, internet access, water, and heating. Inside many of these communities, it is forbidden to steal, harm anybody, or behave rudely or obscenely. People here try to help each other. During the day, they can earn money by washing cars, or handing out bottles, or at the laundry. At night, they return back to the tunnels. Lots of these people just couldn't integrate into society. Some people are happier there because they don't have to pay taxes and rent. 
They don't have to follow the rules and pretend to be someone they aren't. Many of them are polite, smart, and well-educated. Often they are friends with many street artists and filmmakers. It's a unique lifestyle, all on its own, with its own communities. Occasionally, some of them would manage to get out of those tunnels, but then return, feeling that they really belong to the tunnel system and couldn't quite integrate with the world up above. It was in 1904 when the first line of the New York subway opened that stories about these mole people began to spread. Since then, these stories have been overrun with legends and myths. The city's residents thought that the tunnel's inhabitants had created secret societies with their own system of rules and laws, infrastructure, and the division between poor and rich. Few people ventured down there to check. But in the late 90s, more and more journalists began to conduct investigations about these mole people. Eventually, the myth was debunked. But who knows? Maybe in the 1970s, there were many dangerous people among the tunnel inhabitants. Honestly, I can't believe that they managed to pull Martha out of the car and into the tunnels without Jackson noticing. For one thing, she would have screamed or tried to kick loose. Plus, all the car doors were closed. So, as far as theories go, this ain't it. Okay, then let's keep looking. We have the car, the AC, the tunnel, the sunny weather. All right, let's look at the tunnel again. It seems to me that something is wrong with it. Something in the story doesn't quite add up. If we look at the maps and traffic data, we will see that many drivers use the Lincoln Tunnel daily. I'm sure it was just as popular in the 1970s. So how is it possible that Jackson and his wife were the only visitors to this tunnel in the middle of the day? They were driving in it for a few minutes, then stopped to wipe the windows. And not a single car passed by during that time. The tunnel wasn't closed or under repair. Jackson wouldn't have been able to get there if that weren't the truth. People walk through this tunnel in any weather. They hide here from the rain and heat and use the tunnels like a little shortcut. You can meet anyone there, at night, early in the morning, and in the afternoon. Why didn't Jackson see anyone? All right, we're getting nowhere with this. Let's look at this story from a different angle. Where were Jackson and Martha coming from? Where exactly were they going? To visit friends? Maybe their relatives? And who exactly were they? That's something we ought to know, right? And luckily for us, that's exactly where the most interesting part of the story actually is. As it turns out, there is no information about this married couple on the internet. You can check phone directories, databases, marriage registrations, and other sources, but you won't find Martha or Jackson Wright. You won't find their friends or relatives. That's strange, but what about the police? The case of the disappearance of Martha Wright is quite famous, after all. Some big newspapers wrote about it. Perhaps someone's even covered it on TV. But if you search for it, you will soon find that the information about Martha Wright is basically the same on all websites. It's a small column without any additional information. If you search on Google Books, you'll find one result. A book describing mystical tales 
with no evidence. Reading it, it really just feels like someone just took all of the world's most famous urban legends and put them together on one page. Well, there you go. Looks like we found our answer. Martha Wright didn't disappear because she never really existed. But don't give the credit to me. I'm not the genius who solved this. To find the answer, I visited the greatest detective community in the world, Reddit users. They solved the mystery of Martha's disappearance long ago and shared it with everyone. Okay, here's a rhetorical question. Why did reputable newspapers publish an article about Martha Wright? And this wouldn't be the only time either. This story is similar to another famous case about a young guy who was walking through a field near his farm and just vanished into thin air. His family and friends saw it with their own eyes. This story appeared in several films and TV shows about mystical phenomena without any evidence or details. What's the point of making it up? Well, to sell copies. People like these kinds of riddles. People can be strangely captivated by the prospect of the unknown. One of the most popular fake mysteries was about the Pan Am Flight 914. This plane took off in 1955 from New York and then disappeared from all radars. It was supposed to arrive in Florida a few hours later, but it landed at the airport in Venezuela 37 years later. Another case, 1954. Santiago Airlines Flight 513 took off from an airport in West Germany. The plane was due to land in Brazil in 18 hours. There were 88 passengers and four crew members on board. The plane disappeared from the sky and from the radar. Air traffic controllers tried contacting the pilots, but didn't receive any response. 18 hours later, they called the airport in Brazil. Those dispatchers couldn't confirm the plane's landing. They couldn't contact it either. The plane did eventually land on October 12th, 1989. It was in perfect condition, but none of the passengers had survived. These stories seem unrelated to each other, but they do have two things in common. First, you won't find a list of passengers or employees. You'll also find that those dispatches from the 50s and 80s didn't exist either. Second, you'll find that both of these stories were actually published in the same newspaper, one known for its tall tales and fake news. Once again, there is nothing mystical about these cases. But we have gotten to the truth, and now we know a lot more about how to evaluate information critically. The next time you hear about some girl seeing a flying monster near a rock festival or some guy disappearing from his pool, don't just believe it right away. Try to study the details, check the sources. As a rule, these kinds of fantastical stories fall apart if you look at them just a little more closely. The real world is complicated and mysterious, but it is by no means impossible to understand. You just need to think critically and pay attention to the details. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. Every city in this world needs heroes, and superheroes would even be better. Of course, not every city has them, but Seattle does. For several years, a real superhero named Phoenix Jones walked its streets. 
He didn't have superpowers, but he had a cool suit and combat skills. He also had pepper spray and a stun, and his suit was a metallic vest with strong plates sewn onto it. The real name of that hero was Benjamin John Francis Fodor. He was an ordinary guy, but as often happens with superheroes, something terrible happened in his life that made him wear his black gold suit. One day, somebody broke the glass in his car. When Benjamin approached the place, his son fell down on the shards and got hurt. Several people saw that somebody had been trying to rob the vehicle, but no one intervened. But what finally convinced Benjamin to become a superhero was another incident. He and his friend were leaving a bar in the evening when they met with some bad guys. They attacked his friend, and Benjamin called the police. While the officers were on their way, Jones put on a ski mask and repelled the attack of the hooligans. It struck him that day that no one had helped him, even though many witnesses had been around. The guy decided to become a superhero to patrol the streets and fight bad people, such as car thieves, robbers, and swindlers. Benjamin created a suit with a metal vest and sharp spikes to increase his chances in fights. In addition to the stun and pepper spray, he took handcuffs and a first aid kit for each patrol. So he became Phoenix Jones. Almost every night, he fought with thieves and stopped fights. He was in serious danger several times and risked losing his life, but he continued to clear the streets. Rumors about the Avenger quickly spread throughout the city. Phoenix Jones inspired many people to become superheroes, and soon the superhero organization Rain City appeared on the streets, and Phoenix was the leader there. The team existed from 2011 to 2014, and then Phoenix Jones faced a real supervillain who jeopardized his superhero activities. That supervillain was himself. When news about the Seattle superhero appeared in newspapers and on the internet, one journalist decided to take a big interview with him for a podcast, so he spent a few days with Phoenix. Trying to get to know Jones better, the journalist started asking different people about him and found out that he was quite a controversial figure. The journalist began to suspect the superhero of lying. Phoenix Jones said one thing and people claimed the exact opposite, but it didn't matter. The superhero's real problems began when he started to break the law. He attacked a regular guy who hadn't offended anyone. Phoenix Jones was a semi-professional mixed martial arts fighter who could easily defeat the opponent. The people who saw it condemned him because the duel had been unequal. Then he sprayed a group of people with pepper spray, saying he was trying to stop a fight. But the police later said it wasn't a fight. Phoenix Jones made the main mistake in 2020 when he tried to sell something illegal to an undercover police officer. After that, the activity of Phoenix Jones ended. People no longer saw him patrolling the streets. Problems with the law defeated the superhero in him. Superheroes exist not only in the United States, but also in the UK. Meet Angle Grinder Man. People saw this guy in a weird suit several times when he removed clamps from cars after they had been banned for illegal parking. On the one hand, he violated the law because he released vehicles punished by official parking services. But on the other hand, Angle Grinder Man gained love from ordinary people for his activities. He walked the streets with a grinder and cut the iron bars of clamps on parked cars. He was first spotted on the streets of London in July 2002. One local was driving and saw an incorrectly parked car with blocked wheels. Then Angle Grinder Man asked, What are you looking at? After that, he began to remove the clips from the car's wheels using a grinder 
Traffic police officers tried to find this strange superhero but couldn't. He was removing clips from cars all over the UK, and his identity still remains unknown. There are strange and even funny superheroes. There are superheroes who have problems with the law, but some tough guys don't chase fame and just fight bad people, risking their lives. One of them is Bromley Batman. He was the guardian of South London for about two years, saving people from robbers and hooligans. He was a big, trained, bearded man around 30 years old, whose identity remains unknown. He wasn't talkative and silently did his superhero job. One day, a man who called himself Bromley Batman told one publication that he hated his nickname. He preferred to be called The Shadow. The superhero saved several residents of London from attacks and then suddenly disappeared. One worker, Ken was grateful to Bromley Batman for saving his life. The guy met several robbers who wanted to take Ken's things. But then a big guy in a black bandana, t-shirt and army pants appeared in front of them. He easily defeated the biggest bandit and scared the others. A guy and a girl were walking in Cornwall when a man attacked them. But then Bromley Batman appeared, twisted the attacker's arm behind his back and put him on the ground. The superhero ordered the couple to leave that place as soon as possible. A similar incident occurred in Croydon when a married couple was celebrating their anniversary. Two robbers came on both sides of them and demanded they give up their belongings. The couple feared for their lives, but then Bromley Batman appeared out of nowhere. First, he neutralized one thief with a couple of blows, but then the other one jumped on the superhero's back. Bromley Batman kept his cool and threw the attacker to the sidewalk. In 2017, Bromley Batman saved a woman from being attacked by two thieves. 31-year-old Harriet was walking down the street when a car stopped next to her, and two young men got out of it. They tried to take her purse. The woman resisted and called for help, and Bromley Batman heard her call. He handcuffed the robber who was holding the bag and dealt with the other one with one kick. There was someone else in the car. When they saw what the superhero had done to their friends, the driver pressed the gas pedal and drove away. Bromley Batman handcuffed the thief on the ground and gave the woman her purse. The same year, another lady was returning from a pub when she came across a robber. He didn't have time to grab her bag because the woman ran away. The attacker ran after her. She screamed and ran for a few seconds, and then looked around and noticed a man dressed all in black. He had already neutralized the bandit and was running after the woman to tell her that everything was fine. She later said his voice had been friendly. The woman asked his name, and he called himself Guardian. She asked if that was his real name. The superhero laughed in response and ran away. Unfortunately, after 2017, people no longer saw this tough guy. Perhaps he just got tired of his superhero activities or went to another city. Or he crossed paths with someone very dangerous and paid for this. In any case, his example inspired many people and showed that anyone could become a superhero. People in superhero costumes are a common phenomenon in many countries. Citizens who have decided to clear the streets and put on suits can be found in Canada, Australia, Argentina, France, Japan, and many other places. Basically, these people patrol the streets and inform the police if they see something suspicious. They inspire people to help each other, but don't try to follow their example. Putting on a suit and wandering around at night in search of adventures is a very dangerous and bad idea.
That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. Meet Arthur John Priest. No, he isn't famous for being a painter or for discovering some long-lost treasure. He didn't invent some cool gadget or break any world records. No, Arthur John Priest is famous simply for being unsinkable. Proving one can be both lucky and unlucky at the same time, Priest was involved in and survived several mishaps at sea, including the fateful maiden voyage of the Titanic. Priest was not a rich man interested in sailing for pleasure. He was part of the working class, employed as a stoker or fireman, stuck for hours within the hot bowels of large steam-powered vessels. His job was dirty and difficult. He was responsible for keeping the furnaces lit, feeding them coal to ensure enough steam was produced for the engines to work. He had to be careful about not overheating the system or setting fire to the whole ship. The furnaces had to be carefully watched and constantly fed. He breathed it all in a while, working and fighting with the sweat and the dirt. He would often work shirtless because of the heat and was always covered in black coal dust. And when he finally had a break, his shared living quarters were nearby in the same part of the ship. He must have been good at his job, though, because he had no trouble finding work. But wherever he went, bad luck seemed to follow. The first incident was a mild one. As a young man, Priest worked on the RMS Asturias. The passenger liner first set sail in 1907, traveling between Southampton in the UK to Buenos Aires in Argentina. At some point during its maiden voyage, the ship suffered a small collision. The damage was bad enough that the ship returned for repairs. Thankfully, there were no reports of any serious injuries. Priest, unfazed, simply went to work on another ship. But his bad luck lingered on the Asturias. In 1914, the Asturias became a hospital ship, helping care for sick men and women around Europe while bringing them home to England. But in March 1917, at just around midnight, the ship was struck by a foreign object. Its hull was breached and the engine room flooded. The captain ordered everyone to abandon the ship, sending crew, patients, and health staff scrambling for the lifeboats. The vessel was still moving, powering through the water because the main controls, located within the flooded engine room, could not be turned off. The captain refused to leave the ship while people were still trying to escape. He was able to aim the Asturias towards Bolthead, where it finally hit land and couldn't sink. The remaining lifeboats were lowered and the final survivors made it to safety. When they studied the damage on the ship later, the Asturias was declared a total write-off. It might be hard to pin this particular disaster on Priest. After all, he wasn't even on the ship at the time. But it seemed that many of the ships on which he served were destined for trouble. His bad luck followed him to his next job on the RMS Olympic, a massive ocean liner. The Olympic was big. In fact, it had been designed and built as part of the fleet that included the Titanic. But with size came sacrifice. The Olympic was great at moving in one direction, but very difficult to handle when it needed to turn. It was September 1911. The Olympic was trying to alter its course. The Hawk, a smaller ship sailing nearby, didn't give the larger vessel enough room to maneuver, and the two slammed into each other. Because the Hawk was engineered to deal with potential confrontations when out at sea, its reinforced bow tore through the Olympic. Two large gashes appeared on the ocean liner's side. The propeller shaft was badly twisted. 
And worse, the ship began to take on water. Somehow, the Olympic made it to shore without sinking, and nobody was seriously hurt. Priest had no idea that this was just a small taste of what his future held for him. He next found employment on a brand new ship, a better ship, an unsinkable marvel that was said to be the biggest vessel to have ever been built. Yes, he was going to work on the Titanic. And what a job! It took 29 boilers, requiring 850 tons of coal a day, to produce enough steam to power the Titanic. Priest was just one of 150 stokers toiling away in the ship's underbelly, keeping those fires burning day and night. He made around $30 a month. But on April 14, 1912, he would find himself flung from a world of extreme heat to one of blistering cold. At approximately 11.35 p.m., the crew spotted an iceberg. The Titanic tried to avoid it, but the alarm had been sounded too late. Five minutes later, the two collided. The iceberg tore through the hull, and the once watertight compartments inside were badly ruptured. As the cold Atlantic water flooded in, the ship began to sink. Distress signals were sent, but the closest ship, the Carpathia, was over three hours away. In the dark of night and stuck in the middle of nowhere, the crew and passengers panicked. Those who could scrambled for the lifeboats. Others jumped into the icy waters. In total, only 706 survived that terrible night. Priest, at the time of the collision, was down in the ship's lower quarters. He was on break, relaxing from a hard day of work. And as the ship went down, so did his chances of survival. He and his fellow workers were in the most dangerous position on the ship. They had to make their way through a maze of corridors and gangways, some of which were flooded in a mad dash to the deck. And then they faced the frigid water, jumping in and desperately swimming to safety. The ocean was so cold that Priest even suffered frostbite before finding his way onto a lifeboat. He was one of only 44 stokers to survive that night. After an experience like that, most of us would never set foot on a boat again. But Priest had to work. His next job also ended in disaster. He was offered employment on the HMS Alcantara. It went down in 1916, and Priest was again one of the few to make it to safety. He was badly wounded in the process. But he kept pressing his luck, and his next job as a stoker may have felt eerily familiar. He would be working on a ship built by the same people behind both the Olympic and the Titanic. And this ship, named the Britannic, was the biggest of the three. It was also believed to be a superior vessel, fitted with new safety features after the Titanic sank. For example, it had 48 open lifeboats, 46 of which were the largest ever used on a ship before. Two of these were even motorized and equipped with special communication devices. The good news? The Britannic survived its first trip without incident. It was already doing better than the Titanic ever did. However, on November 21, 1916, the Britannic was shaken by a loud explosion while traveling through the Key Channel in the Aegean Sea. The hull was damaged, and some of the compartments began to fill with water. But, unlike the Titanic, the Britannic had been designed for just such an emergency. It had been fitted with five watertight bulkheads. Intact, these would help keep the ship safe and floating for a much longer period of time. But there was one issue. Portholes along the lower decks had foolishly been left open. As the ship tilted, the portholes let in water, which flooded the Britannic and hastened its descent into the sea. 
This effectively made those watertight bulkheads useless. The ship was going down fast, much faster, in fact, than the Titanic had sunk. 35 of the lifeboats were successfully launched, saving most on board. Of the 1,066 passengers and crew, 1,036 survived. Priest, his luck intact, was one of them. And yet, he still wasn't done with a life at sea. He accepted a position as a stoker on the Donegal. It was a smaller passenger ferry that had been converted for use as a hospital boat. In April 1917, it was struck by a foreign object while fleeing an unsafe situation. And though he suffered from a head injury, Priest was again one of the survivors. It took experiencing two collisions and four sinkings before Priest was finally ready to retire. In fact, he reportedly said he only gave it up because no one wanted to sail with him. Can you blame them? He would live out the rest of his life on dry land in Southampton, England, with his wife Annie and their three sons. But Arthur John Priest would always be remembered as the unsinkable stoker.